Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Saturday. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for September 25th, 2022 through uh, October 1st, 2022. I'm your host, John Good. If you're joining me live, because we are doing this live on YouTube, make sure to leave a like, comment, and subscribe. Let me know if you're enjoying the actual content, and then that way uh, you can actually get notified as well when we release future content. If you want to see anything else, any other kind of content across the whole channel, not just for uh, these kind of briefings, let me know. And I definitely look at those and will respond and try to take all those good ideas and throw them into the queue so I can do those things. If you're listening on podcasting platform, because we are available on all the popular podcasting platforms, so uh, Spotify, iTunes, whatever else there is, there's a whole bunch of them. And we're available on there as well. So subscribe and same thing, leave us a review, let us know how we're doing. If you think there's things that we can do better or if there's different things that you want to hear about or see. All those matter. Uh, also, in the description, you can find a link to the show notes. So if you want to see the articles that we talk about, uh, there's some other articles that we might not necessarily talk about that are going to be in there, and just a lot of good news for you to you know, really read about. If you want to go deeper into the articles that we're talking about even, um, you know, a great place to do that because those article links will be available to you. Again, that's going to be on my website, but in the description, you will be able to see a link to that. But if you just want to go to the website, johngood.com, and you'll be able to find them on there. Without any further delay, we are going to go ahead and just dive right into the articles. So first article we have, London police arrested 17-year-old hacker suspected of Uber and GTA 6 breaches. City of London police on Friday revealed that it has, uh, had arrested a 17-year-old teenager from Oxfordshire on suspicion of hacking. No further details about the nature of the investigation were disclosed, although suspected that law enforcement action might have something to do with a recent sting of high-profile attacks aimed at Uber and Rockstar. Both the intrusions are alleged to have committed by the same threat actor who goes by the name Teapot, a.k.a. Teapot, Teapot uh, Uber Hacker. <laughs> that doesn't... There's no way he hacked Uber. <laughs> uh, Uber, for it, uh, Uber, for its part, has pinned the breach on an attacker or attackers and it believes it associated with the Lapsus extortion gang, two of, them, two of whom are facing fraud charges. According to cybersecurity company Flashpoint, the real-world identity of the hacker behind the two incidents is said to be outed in an online illicit form. So a couple things here that we see, right? Uh, first of all, you know, 17-year-old, at least in the United States here, that would be considered uh, a minor in most situations. And um, because basically 18 becomes the, the adult age where the basically people start getting charged with adult crimes. Unless they're like major crimes, then, um, you know, then kids, then kids have definitely been uh, charged with adult crimes. But typically that's kind of the threshold. So, you know, usually with that, they're much more restrictive on the kind of information that they let out as far as like who it is or, you know, anything like that. 
I'm not sure how it is in like London or, you know, in any other country. Right. But um, typically that's how we handle it here in the U.S. Um, I'm guessing it's probably similar. Right. They're probably going to be a little bit more restrictive because it is a younger person. But, um, you know, so that that's definitely one thing to kind of think about. Um, another thing is that just from a hacker standpoint, right, we've seen some high profile breaches that uh, or at least um, breaches of high profile companies. And they're be, they've been done by younger people. Right. And one of the things that you can absolutely see if you were to take, you know, this younger group of kind of renegade hackers, and then you look at some more sophisticated hackers, maybe people that have been through like a computer science degree or something like that, where they have, you know, more experience, more education, they're just more aware. Typically, there's a big difference in um, how they go about um, hiding what they've done or, you know, covering up what they've done, right? Obviously, with like nation states, like that, they are really, uh, really focused on trying to cover their tracks and not be detected for obvious reasons. But then you also have, you know, younger people, sometimes script kiddies, right, who are not as aware. They don't have to be younger people, but they're just not as aware of the things they're doing or, you know, how to kind of not talk about it. (laughs) That seems to be a big thing, especially with the malicious hackers, right? I want to boast about the biggest breach that I've done because I'm awesome and I'm going to tell the world about it, even though I shouldn't, because that's going to end me end up with me in jail, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, that, that definitely is, um, is another thing. Um, and then the third thing really is that, we've seen a lot on these kind of forms and just dark web kind of areas that, you know, a lot of times certain groups or certain people that irritate other people and then they end up getting outed by those other people, right? Like those other people know who they are. They know their identity or their handle or alias or whatever. And, you know, then they out them because they're like, no, you've extremely irritated uh, so there's all these kind of different dynamics in play on the dark side, which are really, you know, psychologically very interesting to kind of step back and just look at. Uh, obviously, if, it, if you get breached at your company, um, it's, it's going to be much harder to have an unbiased kind of just uh, perspective on the situation. But um, it's very fascinating. Next article. Uh, Americans don't know what sensitive data new IT systems collect on Americans, GAO report finds. More than two decades after being tasked with establishing privacy programs, 14 federal agencies have failed to address key practices for protecting the sensitive personal data of Americans, a new government accountability office report finds. Agencies that have failed to implement full privacy plans include the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, which was the target of a data breach in 2015 that exposed sensitive information of more than 20 million government employees. Agencies that have not developed a full privacy uh, strategy include the Department of Agriculture, Defense, Justice, Homeland Security, Housing and Urban uh, Development, Veterans Affairs, State Treasury, Environmental Protection Agency, and OPM. So a lot of the major agencies. Uh, The GAO defines a fully developed risk management strategy as enacting privacy protections 
For sensitive data, defining a designated privacy official tasked with managing risks to information systems and establishing a strategy for continuously monitoring privacy risks. So, you know, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, it's, it's a little bit alarming, like on the government side, that some of these agencies haven't been able to do some of these things, right? And especially, you know, just, just, um, just naming a privacy officer or somebody who's supposed to kind of spearhead or lead the stuff up, I feel like is probably a major issue that, you know, people haven't necessarily done. But also, too, comes al- what comes along with that is giving them the resources that they need to actually do that job, right? Whenever there's something new, some kind of initiative, or you're bringing in some kind of new role, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not enough to just name that person and be like, okay, go forth and do good things. You have to actually give them the support, give them the budget, uh, give them the headcount, you know, all these things so that they can actually go ahead and do it. You know, that's obviously a pretty, pretty tall task in the government space because they deal a lot with, um, you know, a lot with citizens data and, you know, people in the U.S. uh, specifically in this example. So it's, you know, it's not an easy thing, especially in the government too, where there's a lot of steps, a lot of times, a lot of uh, red tape, things that have to be followed. You know, with like the government, they use risk management framework. So NIST RMF, uh, special publications, 835, 37, 53, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, so there's a lot of things that you have to do. And specifically, if you're interested in risk management framework or you haven't looked it up or you know what it is, basically with the controls, the 853, there is, um, there's like, uh, they call them overlays. So there's a whole bunch of different controls. And then if you have certain kinds of data, there is something called an overlay that goes on top of that where it basically says, okay, these specific controls are absolutely required because you have this data. So normally with like risk management framework, uh, you can tailor some of the controls out because they're not applicable, you know, whatever. Um, and so you're like, I'm not going to do these. But then you throw that overlay on top of it and then it's like, okay, you said you weren't going to do that, but you actually have to do that because you're taking in privacy data or um, healthcare data or, you know, whatever it is, there's a whole bunch of them. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the government is typically very slow to (laughs) to implement much of anything. So, you know, um, but we're talking about seven years here. Right. And especially with like OPM, uh, office of personnel management, you know, they were in the news a lot in like the 2014, 2015 timeframe, um, from getting hacked and, you know, having a lot of data on government personnel. <laughs> so, we'll see what happens here. But, I mean, it's going to be a slow process, right? It's the same. Hmm. All right. Uh, next article. TikTok could face a $29 million fine in the UK for failing to protect kids' privacy. So, another privacy article here. TikTok may face a uh, $27 million uh, or $29 million fine in the UK. We do the conversion here. Uh, after privacy regulators found failings in the company's handling of children's data. Information Com- uh, Commissioner's Office issued TikTok a notice of intent 
informing the Chinese-owned video app of its provisional view that TikTok breached UK data protection law between May 2018 and July 2020. It follows an investigation into the company that began in 2019. According to, the ICO, uh, according to the ICO, TikTok may have processed the data of children under the age of 13 without parental consent, failed to present information to its users in a way that's easy to understand, and process special category data, and it's in quotes, such as information on a person's race or ethnicity without legal grounds. We, want, uh, we all want children to be able to learn and experience the digital world, but with proper data privacy protections, Information Commissioner John Edwards said in a statement Monday. So again, another privacy issue, right? As far as data being taken in, taking in. Um, specifically within like Europe and kind of that area of the world, uh, they are very, um, uh, very known to have pretty strict privacy uh, requirements and things on you know what kind of data you can take in. Uh, does the consumer automatically opt in or opt out? You know, how does that whole process work? There's GDPR and all these different regulations, right? So they are definitely kind of the, the leaders in the privacy arena, I would say. Um, and then like in the U.S., we're kind of trying to follow suit, but we have other battles regarding privacy and things like that. Um, but we have a lot of states that are starting to enact privacy regulations here too, um, just kind of on their own, right? But um, TikTok... <laughs> No surprise, right? <laughs> They're always under scrutiny. Uh, if it's not, you know, taking in kids' data, it's uh, shipping off data to China and, you know, all these suspicions and things like that. Um, you know, I would say one thing, especially to just kind of going along with the last article, is, you know, understanding what kind of data that you're taking in and that you're processing and that you're storing, especially, right? The data that you store, you have to understand what kind of data you're storing. You have to understand the uh, implications of that data. So like if you're taking in user data, you know, things like age matter. In this example, they're saying children under 13, which, um, you know, again, there's all these different kind of thresholds as far as like data and like, you know, who can get charged with what kind of crimes and like all this stuff, right? Um, but there's these different thresholds and then you also have types of data, right? So not just blanket data from somebody under 13, but maybe like healthcare data or um, what else? Payment card data, like all this stuff, right? There's a whole bunch of different kinds of data that you could take in. Social security numbers, um, you know, whatever, a lot of stuff. And um, so you really have to understand that kind of data that you're um, you know, especially that you're expecting, right? Um, if a user can put in kind of whatever they want, then, you know, that's probably not a good idea anyways. You should have some kind of restrictions as far as like what they can put in. Um, but sometimes you're going to have free, free, uh, free, free entry forms, right? Free entry fields. And people can just kind of put, you know, whatever, hopefully that's relevant. Um, but especially like when you're, you're specifically targeting certain kind of data and you're, you know you're taking in that data. You have to be very careful, right? Like with TikTok, I mean, they know what kind of data they're taking in. And, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not... Uh, the user accounts on TikToks and, th and TikTok and things like that are pretty simple, whereas what they're taking in. So, 
but yeah, privacy is a growing area for sure. And, you know, it's as far as a career standpoint, uh, if you really want to find a way that's a uh, place that's emerging, you know, privacy is a really good one. Obviously, cloud is another one. But, um, you know, especially on the more non-technical side, privacy has a lot of stuff, a lot of legal implications that um, it would be very good to be familiar with, right? Like there's going to be a lot more regulations that are coming and that have to be adhered to. And so that's definitely a place that you can help companies if you really, uh, if you really want to, you know. Let's see here. All right. Researchers uncover covert attacks, uh, attack campaign. Researchers uncover covert attack campaign targeting military contractors. A new covert attack campaign singled out multiple military and weapons contractor companies with spear phishing emails to trigger multi-stage infection process designed to deploy an unknown payload on compromised machines. Highly targeted intrusions dubbed steep hashtag maverick by secure, uh, Securonix also targeted a strategic supplier to the F-35 Lightning II fighter aircraft. Infection chains began with a phishing, uh, phishing mail with a zip archive attachment containing a shortcut link, a shortcut file that claims to be a PDF about company and benefits, which is then used to retrieve a stager, an initial binary that's used to uh, download the desired malware from a remote server. So email continues, continues, continues to be a huge attack vector because email can get to regular users right? So that's a huge deal because regular users are so likely to be the ones that actually uh, allow attackers that entry point. But then, you know, of course, we've seen also just messaging in general, right? Like where can we get to the end user? That's the key. Um, but we've seen things in like LinkedIn with like the smart links that we talked about last week and all kinds of stuff, right? Like as long as you can get to the user, you probably got a pretty good shot. Uh, th this PowerShell stager sets the stage for a robust chain, chain of stagers that prog progresses through seven more steps when the final PowerShell script executes a remote payload, header.png, hosted on a server named uh, terma.app. Malware is also designed to verify the amount of physical memory and once again terminate itself if it's less than four gigabytes. Also included is a check for virtualization infra uh, infrastructure to determine if the malware is being executed in an analysis environment or sandbox. So one thing that we see a lot with, pay, uh, with malware and kind of code like that is that um, there's an attempt to obfuscate it as far as what it's doing or camouflage what it's doing, kind of hide that. And by breaking it up, you know, kind of delivering it in small chunks is you know, definitely a way to help that process because you're not uh, delivering this full you know, massive payload. And then that way you can change up these parts, right? And then that changes signatures because a lot of these detection methods, they're using, um, they're using, um, uh, they're using signature-based detection. So with signature-based detection, it has basically a database where it looks for, um, you know, it looks for a known signature, right? Like a known hash or known value, a known pattern, whatever, right? So if we're breaking it up in chunks, for instance, and I, it starts out first with this PDF document, then it's a PowerShell uh, script. I can change that PowerShell script 
so that that signature or that hash or that value against that file is going to change. And then that way, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's evaded that tool from being able to detect it. So very, very cool. Um, the other thing that's actually pretty interesting is this whole thing about being able to check memory and making sure that it has enough memory to execute what it's trying to do. That's pretty, uh, that's next level, right? Like that's not a script kitty that's doing that because I mean, I guess if they're like reusing whatever this is, um, you know, maybe, but, uh, I think just based on who they're targeting specifically, like as far as their victims, um, they're going after companies that are probably a little bit more sophisticated, right? Dealing with the F-35 uh, as a uh, strategic supplier. So they're going to have a little bit more requirements as far as security and things that they have to have in place. And um, yeah, so let's see here. Uh, let's see here. Attackers impersonate Circle CI platform to comp uh, compromise GitHub accounts. GitHub is warning of an ongoing phishing campaign targeting its users to steal credentials with two-factor authentication 2FA codes by impersonating the Circle CI DevOps platform. The company learned of the attacks against its users on September 16th. It pointed out that phishing campaigns has impacted many organiza uh, victim organizations except GitHub. Phishing messages claim that the uh, user's Circle CI session has expired and attempt to trick recipients into logging into GitHub. So, you know, really just with phishing in general, and we don't even really need to necessarily dive super deep into this article because, you know, phishing in general is a huge issue. Um, anytime that you can make it very believable, then users are much more likely to, you know, click on things, right? And it's just, it's how it is, right? That's why that's such a huge attack vector because being able to go after the end user who is not focusing on security, they're not focusing on technology, uh, IT, like infrastructure and things like that, you know, they are much more likely to click on this stuff, especially if it's believable. And then there's the whole social engineering aspect of things and like, you know, a lot of things like that. But um, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely a huge attack vector and it will continue to be for a long time, right? Um, this was interesting though, and this is something to keep in mind. So it does say among the tactics that are used by attackers, they may quickly create GitHub personal access tokens, PATs, authorize OAuth, app, OAuth applications, or add SSH keys to the account in order to maintain access to the account in case the user changes their password. So that's something to be on the lookout for. If your account ever gets hacked, not just GitHub, right? Uh, any other kind of service, uh, Twitter, Gmail, whatever. Uh, if you if you suspect suspect something, you know, check out uh, your like your emails that are linked to that account because a lot of times they'll add secondary emails, or in this case, they're adding uh, additional tokens or SSH, uh, SSH keys so that they can still get in and they can still do things. Because once they're in and they get that authorized, even if you change your password, it's not going to change that backend stuff. It's still going to allow that access because of how all that stuff works. 
And so I think that's something to keep in mind. And if you do ever get an account that's breached, you know, double check that stuff just to make sure because that's important. Um, and then of course, you know, once they get in, they're going to try to download as much as they can or access as much data as they can. Just how it is, right? Uh, new hacking group, Metador, lurking in ISP networks for months. Previously no, unknown threat actor that researchers have named Metador has been breaching telecommunications, internet service providers, ISPs, and universities for about two years. Metador targets organizations in the Middle East and Africa, and their purpose appears to be long-term persistence for espionage. The group uses two Windows-based malware that have been described as extremely complex, but there are indications of Linux malware too. Researchers at Sentinel Labs discovered Metador and a telecommunications company in the Middle East that had already been breached by t about 10 other threat actors originating from China and Iran among the Motion Dragon and Muddy Water. Among them. Um, so, yeah. Uh, one thing to keep in mind with attackers is they typically try to lay low. They don't, you know, they don't just go in and they're like, okay, we're going to bust down all the doors and set the place on fire. That's usually not what happens, especially the more sophisticated they get, the more that they are going to, um, you know, really, the more that they're really going to try to lay low because they want to observe, they want to really map out your network and see, you know, what exactly you have. And, you know, that, that's something to keep in mind, right? A lot of times people think that if somebody's going to hack or break in, that it's going to be like, okay, they kicked in the door. Now we've got alerted just like our home security system. It's not always the case, right? A lot of times attackers find a way in and then they'll just they'll hang out. They'll just sit there, right? They'll just wait, see what happens, see what they can find, try to lay low, go real slow. And, you know, especially like nation state hackers, you think they're going to try to uh, find everything within like a day, or like a week? Nah. They're, they're going to be in there for weeks, months, years, maybe, right? Depending on what, you, what company you are or what kind of information you have, how that impacts them. You know, they're going to take their time. And I think that's something that you have to really keep in mind as you're in this career field is because, you know, you're not going to find things right away. You're probably going to find attackers that have been in your network for a while. So that's definitely an important point. Uh, Lazarus Group targets macOS users seeking crypto jobs. Security researchers at Sentinel One have uncovered a variant of the Operation Interception campaign, which uses lures for job vacancies at cryptocurrency exchange platform Crypto.com to infect macOS users with malware. According to an advisory published on Monday, the new attacks would represent a further instance of a campaign spotted by ESET and malware bytes in August and attributed to North Korea-linked Advanced Persistent Threat APT Lazarus Group. Main difference would be that the original campaign targeted Coinbase instead of Crypto.com. And we've talked about this before on this show, is the fact that there's these APT groups that are going on like LinkedIn and things like that. And they're targeting people that are searching for jobs. And they are, you know, they're trying to get them, right? <laughs> like, um, especially with like crypto. Crypto has been a big one because people trying to get jobs at crypto companies, you know, they they attract a certain kind of person that's usually a front runner, like somebody that wants to be cutting edge. And, you know, that's a very interesting kind of user to go after. Uh, decoy PDF documents, adver 
advertising platforms on crypto exchange platform, uh, positions on crypto exchange platform Coinbase were discovered by our friends at ESET back in August 2022, with indications that the campaign dated back at least a year. Uh, last week, Sentinel One observed a variant of the malware using new lures for vacancies at crypto.com. So, same tactic, different, uh, different platform, right? Security company said that at the time of the writing, it's not clear how, yet how the malware is being distributed. However, earlier reports suggest that threat actors targeted victims via private messaging on LinkedIn. So, this could be the whole LinkedIn smart links. They could be using that for sure. Um, that's something we talked about last week and go back if you, if you need to know what that is or, you know, weren't here, um, and check that out. But, um, yeah, I mean, again, this is, this is something that's been going on for a little bit. We've seen several articles that we've talked about over the last, you know, I don't know, six months or something that, um, you know, this has been going on and I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon either. You know, it, it just keeps getting, they, they keep changing who they're, uh, who they're recruiting for. Right. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, let's see here. Okay. VPN providers fleet India as a new data law takes hold ahead of the deadline to comply with the Indian government's new data collection rules. VPN companies from across the globe have pulled their servers out of the country in a bid to protect their users' privacy. Starting earlier this week, the Indian Computer Emergency Response Team, or CERT, a body body appointed by the Indian government to deal with cybersecurity and threats, will require VPN operators to collect and maintain customer information, including names, email addresses, and IP addresses for at least five years, even after they've canceled their subscription or account. So this is something we definitely talked about uh, several months ago. And basically the idea is that India is trying to implement a bunch of new restrictions, requirements, and, um, and some of these companies are kind of fighting back, especially with VPN providers, because VPN providers, the idea is that as a customer, if you're going to connect to our VPN, they, um, basically it creates a secure tunnel and a lot of people use it to access content from different locations in the world. Right. So a lot of countries will restrict the kind of data that you can access or, you know, where you can go on the web. And especially with some of these, um, these more, um, uh, totalitarian, (laughs) I guess is a good word. Uh, the like countries like China and Russia, where there's a lot of censorship, um, they try to restrict the information that you can see right within the country. And so if I just on my internet connection, I go try to go to this website, uh, it's going to notice that I'm within that country, you know, or whatever country, right? Like you're within that country and it's going to restrict it. If I connect to a VPN server uh, or one of these VPN networks, it's going to basically make it appear that I'm in a different country. And so I'm going to get access to some of this stuff because these um, either I'm connecting to a server that's outside of the country, right? And then that is, you know, redirecting that traffic or sometimes with like Tor networks, you will connect to one, uh, one server that will connect to another server that will connect to another server. And basically, you know, you'll connect to several servers that that traffic is all going through. So it's really hidden, hidden where you're actually browsing from. 
And with this, a lot of VPN providers went into India, but this whole idea of having to maintain a lot of information about their customers, even after they've canceled their subscription is, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, it'd be a little bit concerning as a customer, right? That a company would have to retain a lot of that information. And we've seen, um, you know, we, we've seen these companies, these VPN providers, they had threatened that they were going to leave. And then India pulled back and said, okay, we're not going to implement this yet. And then, you know, we're starting to see the VPN providers leave. And that's something as a company, you have to decide, right? Like where you're operating what kind of uh, things are you going to accept, right? Like as far as requirements, uh, regulations, you know, because all of that stuff impacts your business in some way, right? And so what are you willing to accept? If you're not willing to accept that, then you can't be in specific countries, right? Because if you're going to operate in a country, you have to abide by their laws. That's just how it is. Otherwise, you're going to go to jail or, you know, get fined and, you know, all this stuff, right? So it's just a very interesting kind of um, situation. And definitely if you're a global uh, company, then it will you know, apply to you more than if you're just located in one country. You know? So um, definitely something to kind of, kind of watch and just see. I mean, it's, it's interesting just with India in general. Um, they're really trying to amp up a lot of their security. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. It, it's hard to continue to amp up security when co- uh, companies start leaving, right? Especially if they're, if they fund a lot of your budget. So yeah, we'll see. But, uh, with that, that's going to be the last article for this week. Again, I'm your host, John Good. This is your threat Intel briefing for September 25th, 2022. Through October 1st, 2022. If you're watching this on YouTube, I appreciate it. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. If you have any comments as far as what you enjoyed or things that we can change, definitely let me know. Uh, also, too, if you're listening on podcasting platform, because we are available on all, pod- all podcasting platforms, make sure to subscribe, leave us a review. Same thing. Let me know if you see things or hear things you like, if there's other things that you want covered. And again, that can be to the channel as a whole. Um, and then also check out the description because there is a link to the show notes where the articles are at. If you want to dive deeper into the articles we talked about, or there are some other articles that you can also review. Uh, let's see here. And with that, um, thank you for joining me on Saturday if you join me live. But uh, other than that, that's going to call it for the day. Thanks for stopping by.